The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So let's now open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the Scriptures and let them speak. Why don't we uh, open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're finally crossing over uh, the threshold of 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, as a church, we've been working through uh, the book of 1 Peter, uh, which is both a timely word and a timeless word about Christian suffering. And uh, it's about more than just suffering as Christians. Uh, we all know that as Christians, we face what James calls various trials. Uh, James chapter 1 Uh, Verses 2 to 3 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And uh, and that word that's used for uh, the various trials in James is actually a a word that means multicolored, poiklas. It's it's our trials and difficulties that come to us in many different shades and shapes and sizes. Uh, There's a, a varied way that trials come into our lives. There seems to be an endless variety of challenges that we face as believers, whether that's a battle with cancer, the loss of a spouse, a wayward child, being laid off from work, a worldwide virus that shuts down the supply chain. Christians aren't exempt from the the many and various trials of life, all the hardships of life. We can't let anybody, you know, name it and claim it out of uh, James chapter 1. This is applied to everybody. There's a wide variety of pressures uh, that bear down upon us in life, and Scripture encourages us uh, to bear up under that which bears down upon us. Uh, Because when we remain under that pressure, uh, without losing faith, uh, without losing our cool, we are strengthened, we're matured, we're, we're strengthened Uh, by those trials. We're perfected, as James says. James chapter 1 and verse 4 says, let endurance, you know, bearing up under that pressure, have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You know, God loves us and has a wonderful plan for our lives, and that includes suffering as believers. As Christians, we've all experienced difficulties. But what Peter is talking about is, is much more specific Because he's not simply referring to the various trials that we face as Christians, but the the hardships that we encounter because we're Christians. Not just what we face as Christians, but because we're Christians. Because you've identified with Jesus Christ. Because you've taken a stand for righteousness, uh, you will be under fire by the world. And the, the question that Peter has for us is, are you prepared for that? Are Are you prepared to suffer the pressure, the ridicule, the public humiliation for the sake of righteousness? Are you prepared to lose relationships? Are you prepared to lose a job? Are you prepared to be threatened in other, some other kind of way because of the sake of, of righteousness? And the other question is, how do you know you're prepared for that? How, how do you know you're prepared? Because it's easy to say that I'm prepared to make a stand for Christ when you're in the upper room that's full of disciples. You know, it's easy to say, I'll, I'll take a stand for Christ then, or in a church full of Christians. It's easy to say, I'll, I'll take a stand. And Peter would have known about that from personal experience, right? Because on the night when Jesus was betrayed, Jesus turned to his disciples and said, you will all 
fall away because of me this night. As uh, one commentator, Matthew Henry, wrote, though there would be but one traitor, there would be many deserters. (laughs) One traitor, but many deserters. Do you remember how Peter responded to, to Jesus when he says that you'll all fall away? You know, as if he didn't learn enough from rebuking the Lord earlier. <laughs> you know, now he has something else that he wants to contradict the Lord with. It says in Matthew 26, Peter said, Even though all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Not me, Lord. Peter, Peter believed in himself, which is exactly what some of you might be doing who are listening to this message today. You know, I, I believe in myself. I trust in myself. You know, I, I'm confident that I wouldn't turn away from the Lord, that I would be somebody who would stand up and I'll be counted, but completely unprepared for the battle that you have to face. And those battles are ever increasing today, aren't they? Ever increasing opportunities to make a stand for the Lord. Jesus says this very night before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And Peter says, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. Peter was convinced that he was ready to die. But after Jesus was betrayed, the time came for Peter to publicly identify with Jesus Christ. And he denied him not once, not twice, but three times. Three times. I don't know what you're talking about. I I don't know the man. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. It's been said that nothing is more powerful than faith in yourself. But uh, Proverbs 28, 26 says, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. And Peter was a fool that night. He was convinced he wouldn't deny the Lord once, but he managed to deny him three times before the night was over. And it may not be long before you have your own courtyard experience next to a fire and some servant girl ask you, you know, aren't you with that guy, Jesus Christ? When you'll be tempted to say something different than the truth. One of my Bible professors told me about an experience uh, that he had while he was on staff at a school. Uh, They had this teacher training uh, where they were all uh, gathered together. The administrators thought it would be a a good idea just to to bring some fun and, you know, kind of levity to the meeting that they had by by bringing in a palm reader as a fun activity, as as an icebreaker, you know, brought in a, a palm reader. My professor was totally caught off guard and he's sitting here in this long line of all these other teachers who are part of the school. And, uh, you know, one by one, this palm reader would go to one person and say, hey, can I, can I read your palm? And they said, oh, yeah, sure. And then the palm reader would start to tell them things about their life that they hadn't shared with anybody else that was part of that group. And they said, oh, that's amazing. Down to the next one. How about you? Can I, can I read your palm? Yes, 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 yes. Until it finally got to my professor And he looked up and he said, no, (laughs) no. And he said, there was this tremendous pressure that I felt at that moment, seeing everybody else say, yes, 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 yes. And then it gets to me and it's like, what am I going to say? He said, I felt tremendous pressure just to say, yeah, go ahead. But he said, no, no. Pressure to do the wrong thing, even though it was an optional experience and he was convinced in his heart that he shouldn't do it, He was still tempted at that moment to go ahead and hold out his palm. How how many times have you done that? Maybe your courtyard will be when you're in a a group of friends. You know, somebody shares a a dirty joke, shares an inappropriate video. Do you laugh it off? Do you participate? Or are you willing to, to make a stand during that time? 
Maybe your courtyard will be when your office makes plans to have a, uh, a shower for a same-sex couple. And they expect you to be there. Well, what, what do you do? Do you go? What if, what if it's your boss? <laughs> do you go then? I've had believers ask me, you know, should I go to a same-sex wedding? Those are real questions people have to wrestle with. What if it's a family member? You know, I don't want to offend my family. What do I do? Or maybe your courtyard experience is when a family member refuses to speak to you because you can't in good conscience refer to them or another family member with their preferred pronoun. And now you become the target. And it's a reminder to all of us that we're still living in a world that's under enemy occupation, right? And as one commentator said, it's a a problem that will recur whenever Christians are forced by their faith to oppose cultural values widely held in the secular world within which they live. But there's a way that we can prepare ourselves in advance. In Proverbs 28, 26, I read earlier, it says, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. But the end of that verse says, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. There's, there's a way that we can walk wisely and be delivered. And 1 Peter gives us the kind of tools that we need to walk in wisdom and to arm ourselves for the battle ahead. So let's take a look at it. 1 Peter chapter 4, I'll go ahead and uh, read uh, verse 1 down to, to verse 6. It says, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached, even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Why don't you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we do thank you for your word. And uh, Father, we thank you for the authority of it. It speaks to us with such power. And Father, I pray that you would speak to our hearts today. Uh, Help us to, to hear what your word has to say to us. And Father, I pray that we would walk away and be strengthened because of this word that we'd be prepared for the battle that that all of us will have to face, whether we've already faced it or are planning to face it in the near future. Father, I pray that uh, you'd help us to to apply these things, to think about uh, the way that we can use these truths, Lord, in our our lives. And uh, Father, I pray that uh, we would honor you, and uh, I pray that you'd use me as a weak instrument to be blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Peter 4 picks up where chapter 3 left off. If you look back to verse 18 of chapter 3, uh, it says, For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust. And uh, in chapter 4, in verse 1, Peter returns back uh, to that same idea. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh. And if you remember the whole reason that Peter introduced the sufferings of Christ in this context was to provide us with an example of suffering for righteousness' sake. In chapter 3 and verse 17, it says, For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. And the question would be, why? Why is it better to suffer for doing what's right? And the answer is that Christ suffered for doing what's right. 
And Jesus is our perfect example. And the, the rest of chapter 3 lets us know that he triumphed in his suffering, even bringing the angels and authorities and powers under his subjection. And what chapter 4 does is it, it picks back up on this same idea. So, so Peter's already told us why we should suffer for doing what's right. It's the example of Jesus Christ. And now he goes on to tell us how we can suffer for doing what's right. How can we suffer for doing what's right? Peter gives us some some practical help. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. In other words, get ready. Arm yourself. To to arm yourself is a a military term. It was used as a, uh, 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 about armed uh, foot soldiers in the Greek military. It was a word that was used for weapons of war- warfare to pick up your weapons. And if you're going to be able to, to suffer for the sake of, of righteousness, you need to get armed and prepare yourself for the battle. You, you have permission to carry, okay? Everybody's got a carry permit here. But the kind of combat uh, that you need to be ready for is not a physical combat, and it's not even a battle against the person that may be encouraging you to sin. That's not where the battle takes place. The, the battle doesn't take place on the outside. The battle takes place on the inside. That's where the battle is. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, not carnal, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And according to 1 Peter 4, the battle is in the thoughts and intentions of your heart. When Peter says, arm yourselves with the same purpose, he's speaking about the intentions of the, the heart. Some of your translations uh, may say there, arm yourselves also with the same mind, with the same attitude, with the same way of thinking. It, it's about arming yourself in your mind, and that's the idea uh, behind this word. It's the Greek word, anoia. Uh, it's about how we think, what motivates us. It's the same word that's used over in uh, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, uh, where it says that the word of God is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You know, what's going on on the inside, how I'm motivated. The word for intentions of the heart, same word, anoia. And if we're going to be prepared to stand in the evil day, our minds have to be armed with the same kind of thinking that Jesus had. And what kind of thinking was that? And I believe it's, it's more than just I'm going to die. I believe it's more that's going on in Jesus' mind than just I'm going to die. The question is what motivated him to go to the point of death? And, and do we have any insight about what motivated Jesus? Do we have any examples that, that reveal the, 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 the motives of the heart? Maybe a, a private and vulnerable moment where his soul was laid bare. I believe we do have that kind of example. Why don't you take your Bibles with me and Flip back to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. In his book, The, uh, the Hidden Prayer Life of Our Lord, David McEntry said, One scarcely dares to speak of Gethsemane and the midnight conflict where our Redeemer agonized and overcame. He says, This is holy ground. Holy ground. And in Matthew chapter 26, we have the high privilege of being close enough to be within earshot of an inter-Trinitarian conversation. This is a, a scene that takes place on Thursday night, which was the night of Jesus' betrayal. As Jesus uh, approaches the Garden of Gethsemane, it's clear that in his mind, he's, he's already bearing the awful weight of sin. In chapter uh, 26 and verse 37, we're told that he grieved. He was grieved and distressed. Verse 38 says that his soul is, was deeply grieved to the point of death. 
Verse 39, it says that Jesus collapsed under the weight of it all, the weight of the thought of bearing the, the sins of the world. He went a little beyond them and fell on his face. And that's not hyperbole, by the way. That's, that's literally Jesus fell face down. And there's some who would believe that Jesus was afraid of, of death. And you wonder, are, are we talking about the same Jesus? You know, Jesus afraid to die. You know, Jesus is the one who spoke about death as nothing more than sleep. Uh, to Jairus' daughter, to, about Lazarus, speaking about Lazarus, he said, it's just sleep. So Jesus isn't afraid of, of death. How, how could the one who, who spoke of death as sleep be afraid of death? Jesus says, don't fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Don't fear death. Jesus wasn't fearful of death. He wasn't fearful of the torture. But he did agonize over the, the cup of, of wrath. The cup of wrath. And he says, let this cup pass from me. The, the, the full strength of the, the wine of the wrath of God mixed in its full strength and the cup of his anger is what Revelation 14 speaks about. This is what Jesus is looking to. It would have taken us an eternity to pay for the wrath of God and Jesus paid for it all in those three hours on the cross, the full brunt of the Father's wrath and hatred against sin. And if you're here today and you haven't trusted in, in Jesus Christ, I would urge you to turn to Christ because there's only two options that you have, okay? There's only two options as it relates to the wrath of God. Either Jesus Christ takes your wrath for you and fully completes all that needs to be paid for God's wrath on your behalf. Either that's what happens, or you will pay for that wrath by yourself, on your own, without any termination point. Those are the only two options that you have. Either Jesus Christ takes my wrath, or I will bear my wrath. It's one of the two, one of the two. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin on our, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You can stand before God as completely righteous. You know, having the, the, the wrath of your sins wiped away because Jesus Christ bore that wrath in your place. He suffered for sins, and I'd urge you, if you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ, to do that today. But as Jesus contemplated that suffering, look at verse 39. It says, he went a little beyond them, fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But what did he say? Yet not as I will, but as you will. Not as I will, but as you will. What motivated Jesus was the will of the Father. The will of the Father motivated Jesus. He entrusted himself to the Father. He resigned himself to the Father's will, no matter what. And brothers and sisters, I want to let you know that if there was not a Gethsemane, there would not be a Calvary. <laughs> If there was not a laying down, a submission to the Father in everything, to lay down his will at the Father's will, if there was not a Gethsemane, there would not be a Calvary. And we see that same motivation all throughout the life of, of Jesus Christ. That, that he did not come to do his own will, but the will of who? The will of the Father who sent me. John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He says, I, I have food that, that you don't know about. My food is to do the will of the one who sent me. John 5, 30. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And if you flip back to 1 Peter, it's the same kind of entrusting 
ourselves to the will of God that arms us to face suffering. Look at it again, 1 Peter chapter 3. You might have missed this. Chapter 3, verse 17. Listen to what, what Peter says. For it is better, what is he saying? If God should will it so. It's better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. What does that mean? That means that I'm leaning back on the will of God. God, if, if I'm to go through this, it's because of your will. I trust your will. I trust you, God, in this condition. That's, that's what it's, what's going on, First Peter chapter 3. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. It says, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, verse 2, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for what? For the will of God. There's a contrast between our will and his. You also find the same thing in, in verse 3. Look at verse 3, chapter 4. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire or the will of the Gentiles. Again, there's a contrast between the will of the unbelievers and the will of God. Over in chapter 4, look at verse 19. Verse 19. It says, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. And it's my prior submission to the will of God that prepares me to suffer. My submission to the will of God prepares me to suffer. And that's a decision that we make ahead of time. God's will is more important than my suffering. You understand that? God's will is more important than my suffering. And I think that's how we're to understand the statement at the end of verse 1, where it says, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And interpreters wrestle with that. I mean, what, what does he mean by that? He who has suffered in the flesh. Who, who is he who has suffered? Are we, are we talking about Christ who has suffered? Or are we talking about the believer who has suffered? Just, just to answer that really briefly, I don't think the statement is a reference to Christ for a number of reasons. Number one, it would just be a repetition of what Peter has already stated you know, at the beginning of the verse, since Christ also has suffered, and then because he who has suffered in the flesh. And why, why not just say Christ instead of he who has suffered? You know, why not, why not just say Christ if that's the reference? Number two, uh, Peter's in a section where he's addressing the believers personally. So in verse one, he starts off with Christ. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves. So now he's talking about what you are to do. Arm yourselves for the very same purpose. And to, in verse two, it uh, speaks about living out the rest of your time, no longer for the lust of men. That's not ref a reference to Christ. That's a reference to the believer. Living out his life, no longer for the, the lust or the desires of men. And then third, it would also be much more appropriate to say that believers have ceased from sin rather than to say that Christ has ceased from sin. Because verse 1 says, He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Uh, the word cease means to, to stop something that you're engaged in. You know, uh, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 2 speaks about uh, sacrifices that would have ceased to be offered. You know, if a sacrifice could take away sins, it would no longer have to be offered. So it's to turn away from something. And Jesus never had to turn away or to stop to cease from sin because he never committed any sin, right? First Peter 2 and verse 2, who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And there's some who would argue that all it means is that, you know, once Christ died for sins, that he doesn't have to die for sins again or that he's done dealing with sins. 
Uh, but that would introduce an idea that we can't imitate. This is what we're to imitate, right? This is what Christ is supposed to be an example for us. So how are we to imitate Christ dying for sins? We, we can't imitate that. Christ completed his work of suffering for the wrath of God, for the sins of the world. And the rest of verse 2 says that the one who has suffered has ceased from sin. And then verse 2, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh. So suffering precedes living the rest of the time in the flesh, not for the will of men, but for the will of God. So it's talking about somebody who's still here, not somebody who has already died. So Peter's not talking here about Christ who has suffered and ceased from sin, but rather it's speaking about the believer who has suffered and ceased from sin. But that still leaves the question, what does it mean to cease from sin? Does it mean that we never sin? Of course not. But it does mean that if we're willing to suffer for the will of God, that we prove that we are done with sin as the dominating force in our lives. It's similar to what Paul said over in Romans chapter 6 and verse 11, where he says, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. If, if you prove that you're willing to suffer for sin, you've just removed one of the greatest weapons for sin. You understand that? If, if you prove that you're willing to suffer for sin, you've removed the greatest weapons of sin against you. Because sin gains mastery over us by threatening punishment if we disobey or promising pleasure if we do obey. That's, that's how sin works. You know, listen to me and I'll, you know, I'll give you pleasure. Listen to me and I'll protect you from, from harm. That's how sin tries to gain mastery over us. That's the, the law of sin that Paul talks about over in Romans chapter 7. What does the law do? It entices us to obedience with reward. It discourages us from disobedience with a threat. That's how laws work. But if I'm willing to suffer, the greatest threat of sin is gone. Because I'm willing to suffer to do what's right. I'm willing to suffer to be obedient. So the greatest threat is gone. My, my greatest threat is God. You know, that's who my greatest threat is. And on the other hand, my greatest pleasure is no longer sin. My greatest pleasure is to do the will of God. That's what Jesus said. It's my food to do the will of the one who sent me. This is my food to do the will of God. That's my greatest pleasure. And the greatest threat is God. So what does sin offer me? Nothing. Like, like I'm done. Sin has ceased to be the master over me, and I'm done with it ruling my life. The word for cease is in the perfect tense, indicates a definite break with sin. Uh, Hebert in his commentary says it carries a note of triumph. He has effectively broken with a life dominated by sin. It need not mean that, that he no longer commits sin, but that his old life dominated by the power of sin has been terminated. It's like when you, uh, you know, cancel a service you know, cancel a contract for service to your home. You know, it, it doesn't stop the mail from coming to your home, but you no longer have to pay attention to it, right? It's like, I, I don't have any obligation to you. You know, I've paid you all that I need to pay. There's, there's no obligation. And that's, that's what you call junk mail, right? You know, I no longer have to look at it. I can just toss it in the mail because I have no contract with AT&T. You know, just go in the trash. You know, you, you don't, I don't owe you anything. We have no obligation and we have no obligation to sin. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 2 says, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men. I no longer have to serve the lust of men, but for the will of God. I no longer live for the lust that used to dominate me. I live for the, world, uh, for the, the will of God, and I am now prepared to suffer. 
I'm prepared to suffer because the will of God means more to me than my suffering. Do you get that? Number two, not only are we prepared to suffer, we should also be prepared to separate. Look at verse three. It says, for the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking, parties, and abominable idolatries. Verse 3 reminds us of the pit that some of us were saved out of. And if you don't have this pit as a part of your testimony, you can thank God that you never had to be in the pit to be saved out of it. You know, sometimes you hear people give a testimony and, you know, they say, oh, that was a powerful testimony. I wish I had a testimony like that. No, maybe you don't. (laughs) You know, it's like, you know, we, we look at the testimonies where it's like, I was laying in the gutter. I had like five needles in my arm. And, you know, it's like, oh, that's a powerful testimony. You know, it's also a powerful testimony that I grew up in a Christian home and I never had to be out on the streets and in the gutter with five needles out of my arm. God saved me from that. That's a powerful testimony. And in both cases, it's a resurrection, right? I mean, God has raised somebody back to life, raised somebody from spiritual death to spiritual life, and that is a miracle. So if you have a testimony and you never had to be out there, praise God for that. Only thank God that, uh, that he saved you from what you could have been involved in. But in 1 Peter 4, it speaks about the life that some of these believers were saved from, saved out of a loose and profligate lifestyle. And as 1 Corinthians six eleven says, such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And there's uh, three categories of sin that are mentioned here. Uh, Verse three, uh, sins of immorality, sins of drunkenness, and sins of idolatry. And there's a historical connection between all three of these because this is what characterized the false religion of the Gentiles. The, The Gentile religions were filled with sensuality, drunkenness, and idolatry. Actually, the the pagan temples were often financed by prostitution. That's how the pagan temples were financed, both men and women. It was considered part of their worship. And that's why God, when he speaks to the children of Israel, Deuteronomy 23 and verse 17, he says, none of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute, nor shall any of the sons of Israel be a cult prostitute. It's actually one of the reasons that God kicked out the nations that existed in Israel before Israel got there. 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 24 says, There were also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to the abominations of the nations, which the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. Why did God kick them out? Because they were involved in this cult prostitution. This is something that was characteristic of false religions, even through Greek and and Roman times. It was thought to, to please the gods was to also engage in immorality. And if you keep in mind that the Greek and Roman gods were just, you know, supersized versions of people, you know, it makes sense, you know, because the gods like what I like. And uh, in this culture, immorality was the norm. It was the norm. There was a man by the name of Demosthenes. He was a, a Greek statesman. He was an orator. And he spoke for many of his countrymen when he said this. Listen to what he said. For this is what living with a woman in marriage is. For a man to beget children by her and present his sons to his fellow clansmen and members of his district and to give daughters as his own in marriage to their husbands. So, you know, the purpose of being with a a wife, a woman in marriage, is that you have legitimate children that you can present before the other clansmen as like, hey, look at at my, my children here. And you can present them for marriage. 
But then he said this, mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure and concubines for the daily care of our persons, but wives to bear us legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of our households. This was common. (laughs) It was common. You know, I keep my wife around because I want legit children, but like, you know, I keep the other woman around because I, I need some pleasure. That was the way that the Gentiles thought. Multiple women for multiple purposes, and there was no shame in it. No shame in it. Sensuality is a word that means shameless conduct. It's the same word that Peter used to describe uh, the wicked men of Sodom and Gomorrah who went after strange flesh, 2 Peter 2.7, who, who even after they were struck blind, they're still going after the door, if you can imagine that. I mean, after, after you're struck blind, you think I'd say, okay, that's enough, I've had enough. But no, they struck blind, and they're still trying to reach for the knob. I mean, are you serious? Seriously? This is the kind of just this kind of reckless passion that these men had. The uh, word for lust or passions, it's a, a word for uh, strong desires, cravings of the flesh, unrestrained desires. And we need to be committed to remaining separate as believers from these kinds of sexual sins. Why? Again, because this is the will of God. <laughs> it's the will of God that we abstain, right? First Thessalonians 4 verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. We entrust our souls and our bodies to him. And God knows what we need more than we do. Do do you believe that that God is wise, that he's loving, that he's good, that he's sovereign? If you you believe in that, that, you can also believe that God will give you what you need. He'll give you what you need. And if, if I don't have it yet, it's because God has determined that I don't need it yet, right? Because God's will is actually good for me. God is wise. He, he knows better than I do. And so, so I trust him with that. I, I lay my will down to the will of God, and I trust him. And if you're here and you're single, one of the ways that you trust him is with that future spouse, that I trust you for the right timing and in your sovereign will for my life that I lay my will down to yours. Not as I will, but as you will, right? And that doesn't mean that we don't need to match some people up in here, but (laughs) it does mean that we trust the Lord for his timing, amen? The next three words that are used here in 1 Peter uh, chapter 4 speak about a a lack of restraint when it comes to alcohol. And the, the scriptures are very clear regarding the kind of restraint that should be placed around alcohol. It was actually a a disgraceful thing to participate in the unfruitful works of darkness and intoxication is mentioned multiple times across the scripture as a a habit of the unbelievers that we're to abstain from. Ephesians 5 verse 18 says, do not get drunk with wine for that is dissipation. That word uh, dissipation actually means wasteful, wastefulness. You know, actually, uh, you know, a, a, a common phrase that people use sometimes is that, you know, somebody got wasted. That's actually not too far from what the Bible says. Wasted. It's wastefulness. It's dissipation. To be filled with wine, to be drunk with wine is wasteful. We're to rather be filled with the Spirit. And drunkenness went hand in glove with all the other abuses associated with carousing and drinking parties. In uh, 2013, the National Institutes of Health did a study on college drinking. Now, now keep in mind, this is a list of what happens every year with students between the ages of 18 and 24 as a result of alcohol consumption. 
1,825 deaths from alcohol-related injuries. That's a year, including car accidents. 599,000 unintentional injuries. 690,000 assaults by another student who has been drinking. 97,000 sexual assaults or date rape. 150,000 health problems. And, 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 and those statistics don't include the drug-related incidents. And it doesn't include anybody below or above the age of 24. You know, that's, that's that group, 18 to 24. Alcohol clouds the judgment, dulls the senses. And in the case of many in the ancient religions, it prepared them to get into a frenzied state to pursue sin and reckless abandon. The word drunkenness literally speaks about the bubbling over of wine, wine that was consumed in an abundance. Uh, it was the practice of the ancient world actually to dilute their wine with water. You know, an average mixture would have been two to four parts and stronger drink would have been half and half. Uh, the wine that they took straight was for the purpose of getting drunk. That's just, that's just history if you look at it. Uh, Clement of Alexandria uh, described the pagan practice of drunkenness and said the miserable wretches think excess in drinking to be the happiest life. But their life was nothing but revel, debauchery, baths, excess, urinals, and idleness. And like I mentioned, it also led to the other sins associated with it. The, the word for carousing uh, that's used here in uh, 1 Peter uh, comes from a word that was used for the festal procession of the Greek god Dionysius, who was known by the name, the Roman name, Bacchus. Uh, he was the, the god of wine and fertility. And uh, the celebration was known as the, the Bacchanalia. It was like, a, you know, a Mardi Gras on steroids. It was uh, accompanied by ecstatic dancing, eating the flesh of live animals. I mean, these people just went wild, started eating animals, just raw, live animals, overindulgence of alcohol. People were whipped up into a frenzy. Uh, they believed that the power of Bacchus was being expressed within them, and this was all considered their worship. That's what pagan worship was. Similar word for, for drinking parties, revelries. It was drunkenness that led to unrestrained immorality, sexual expression. But the God of the Bible was not to be worshipped in this way. And right at the beginning of Israel's history, God made this clear to his people. If you want to flip back to Leviticus chapter 10, if you have a, a Bible reading plan, you get to the book of Leviticus and you're tempted to tune out but uh, you at least want to get to chapter 10, okay? Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10. There's a, a significant account that you don't want to miss here. And it's uh, the first official ministry of Nadab and Abihu, the sons of, of Aaron. You know, they're, they're first, they, they've been ordained into the ministry, their first official service for the Lord. Look at uh, Leviticus chapter 10. It says, now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, it is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. So Aaron, therefore, kept silent. And people wondered, you know, what, what was this strange fire? Like, what was, what was going on here? And, and how did they get this so wrong? But look at the first comment that the Lord gives. Look down in verse 8. It says, Then 
the Lord spoke to Aaron. The Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you, when you come into the tent of meeting, so that you will not what? Die. It is a perpetual statute throughout your generations, and so as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane, and between the clean and the unclean. There was to be no mixing of profane practices with the holy. And I believe that Nadab and Abihu were mixing in some of what they saw in the pagan practices with the worship of the true God. And God was having none of it. You you don't indulge in excess of alcohol before you come into my presence. That's not the kind of worship that I want. And and here they go mixing these pagan practices with the, the worship of the true God. You know, none of these drunken frenzies uh, was to honor and worship the true God. That's what it leads to. What does it lead to? Abominable idolatries is what this eventually leads to. False worship and abominable idolatries. And uh, that's the, the last word that's mentioned here in First Peter chapter 4 and verse 3, abominable idolatries. And that's maybe not where they intended to go, but that's where they ended up. And it's a clear path. And, and that's the course that you're on. And, and Peter says that you've pursued this course. This is where that course takes you. It's where the course takes you to idolatry. Further up, uh, when he speaks about, uh, in verse 3, having pursued a course of sensuality, that word for uh, pursued a course, uh, it's all one word in the Greek, to travel, to journey, to be on your way. And basically, it's like you start down this course, and this is where this kind of activity leads. It leads to idolatry. And there's really a long and a sad history uh, that makes the connection between idolatry and drunkenness and sexual expression. It's all connected. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard of people who start to make an excuse for their lust. They start to make an excuse for their drunkenness. And then before you know it, they're making an excuse why they don't believe in God anymore. Why? Because they need a justification so they can continue doing what they're doing. And in order to pursue what I desire, I have to get rid of God. So I'll get a God that's okay with what I'm doing. I'll get a God that's okay with my sexual expressions. I'll have a God that's okay with my drunkenness. And uh, in order to do that, I have to change the God of the Bible. It leads to idolatry. Whenever I hear a person that's rejected the faith, it uh, usually doesn't take long to trace it back to where did that start. There, there was a giving over of uh, biblical morality long before they gave up uh, biblical doctrine. And according to 1 Peter 4, you need to prepare yourself for that kind of battle. And where does the battle begin? It begins in your heart, in your mind, in your intentions. That's where it begins. Am I committed to the will of God? Because I remember that God is good, he's wise, he's sovereign, and I can trust him. And here's the other question you need to consider. We're not going to finish this today, but here's the other question you need to consider. Haven't you given enough years to the enemy? Haven't you had enough? (laughs) You've already put in your time. Why do you want to do overtime for Satan, right? Peter says in chapter 4 and verse 3, the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. And the idea is, haven't haven't you spent enough time back there? What, What lasting benefit did you gain from those kinds of practices? What, what did you get from that? Haven't you had enough of that stuff? Romans 6, verse 21 says, Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. 
But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, that's where my will is bound. My will is bound to God. You derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is no benefit back there. What was back in my old life? Shame, slavery, death. That's what the old life produced. Why why would I want to go back there? Haven't you had enough of that life? 2 Peter 2.22 says it's happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. And to some degree, when you came to Christ, wasn't that what you gave up? <laughs> you, you said, you know, Lord, I'm, I'm done with that. I'm done with that old life. That's, that's what we say when we come to Jesus Christ. Lord, I'm done with the old me. I've had enough of that. Matthew 16 says, uh, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Basically saying no to you. I'm denying myself, taking up my cross and following Christ. John 12, 25 says, he who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life, what life? The old life. I hate that life. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. When we came to Jesus Christ, it was because we got to the point where we had enough of the old and we wanted a new life. And that's exactly what we do in our salvation. And we submit ourselves to the will of God. Amen. Let's uh, bow our heads forward to prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you, God, so much for uh, this time that we've had together. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would uh, allow your word to, uh, to speak to us. And uh, Father, that we would commit ourselves to the will of God, uh, regardless of, of what that looks like. Uh, Father, that just as uh, Christ armed himself uh, with submitting himself uh, to the will of, of the Father while he was here, uh, Father, I pray that we would have the, the same kind of mind, the same kind of attitude, the same kind of disposition. Now, Father, that we would submit ourselves completely to the will of God because the will of God is more important than my suffering. And uh, Father, I pray that you would be glorified and honored in our lives. In Jesus' name, we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events or where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating CDs and all digital files.